Good morning. Hey, grab your Bibles. We're continuing to study uh, through this series. It's breaking up Genesis for us um, called What We Believe. And so we're studying through multiple weeks of basic Orthodox Christian theology, uh, which is why on the front end, our call to worship is the Apostles' Creed. You probably didn't even know there was such a thing as a uh, historically speaking, as radical reformers. Um, we're not Presbyterians, we're not Lutherans, we're radical reformers, which means we were right. You can lie, it's okay, it's okay, because we were, right? So we're not creedal in the sense that the creeds supply um, orthodoxy for us. We, we, we would say we are Bible-saturated, not creedal, understanding that the Bible produces the creeds. So we got some good arguing we can do with our fellow reformers. And we do, because some of them still baptize infants, which is not right. And we only baptize believers, which is correct, right? And so we can have some fun with that, knowing that we're all on Team Jesus, if, if you're in there. So we're singing the Apostles' Creed, all right? So that's what that is, all right? So just so you know, just kind of outline some Christian orthodoxy. And it's good to sing those things, because the Bible gives us a songbook right in the middle called the Psalms. And they're all songs. They're scriptures set to music. And so we're singing a creed set to music, and that's okay. It's a little different, but just get in the spirit of it, all right? So you can roll with it and understand it and realize, oh, that's pretty good. That's, that's not too bad, all right? And then you'll get in the groove and realize, oh, we're singing doctrine. This is good. And so, which helps me uh, remember this. Don't forget, a Christian worship service isn't camp. It's not retreat. A Christian biblical worship service is designed to flow through movements. Now, we studied through this a little ways back when we talked about worship. Movements through, experiential movements through dialoguing with the Lord. That this isn't a consumption thing. There's, there's one, one person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's the audience. So you're not the audience. There's one audience, and it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He is receiving what we bring to Him in worship as we interact with Him over the bread, over prayer, over the Word in song, alright? So this is not meant for your consumption. He is the consumer. We are bringing to Him something to sacrifice today, right? And so this morning, that even what we're doing as a worship service is teaching us something about our audience this morning. And that is... He, the Lord Jesus, is primary. just want to really encourage you as we really get into specifics starting this week on the Bible, that you go back and listen to the previous two weeks, particularly last week on 1 Timothy 4, 1-16. And today we're going to scoot over to the Bible, God Speaks. Now this week I've got notes for you, but they're not up now. I don't want you looking at your phones. I want you to just listen. I want you to interact with the Holy Spirit. As we talk through what the Bible says about itself, I'll post those notes for you so you'll have them for your radical life groups as soon as we depart from here. But today our topic is the Bible God speaks. Now rather than coming from a particular passage and it forming the framework of our outline, today we're coming with an outline from all over the Bible. Right? So we're looking at multiple passages, which is why I'm going to post that later for you. So try to have quick fingers if you're new to Christianity and not sure about what's in the Bible. Look to somebody around you and they should be able to help you, okay? And if not, smack them. Tell them you should be able to help me. And 
If not, come up here. I'll help you. And if you're nervous about that, see me later, and I'll help you navigate your Bible. But don't worry about it. I'll read it for you, okay? And so we're going to study about God's Word today. There are quotations you're going to find in your notes. I didn't footnote them because I'm sick of footnoting things. I've been footnoting since I was in graduate school, and I was like, I'm just going to tell you for academic integrity. If it's in quotes, I got it from Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, okay? It is his, not mine, okay? Does that suffice for a public footnote? Everybody good? Awesome. Very good. When we deal with fringe or aberrant teachings in Christianity that come from various circles, what I always have told my students when I used to teach systematic theology, what I've always said to them and what I always remind them of and what I want to remind you of, it goes back to that source's view of God's Word. Aberrant, fringe teachings coming out of, quote, Christian circles always can be traced back to the source's view of the Bible. So it matters that we get that right. It all starts with the Word of God. As a matter of fact, even in the discipline of systematic theology, there are debates on where you begin your systematic theology. Some say you start with Jesus. Some say you start with Scripture. And I would argue we start with Scripture because Scripture is where we get our teaching about Jesus from. And so we're going to start with Scripture because it is the manual. It is God's Word. And we want to see it properly. And we want to be equipped well. We asked this question at Three Rivers Church. What if the whole church was the missionary? What if the entire church was the missionary? That question absolutely changes what we look like. Tactically, strategically, mission-wise, and vision-wise. In order to put that question to work, however, we can't just preach to you a litany of how-to sermons as though we're priests and you're the lowly laity that needs to just be told what to do. That's never been our strategy because you're not laity. You're priests to the Lord. Right? Right? You are priests to the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And likely you have God's Word. Meaning I don't need to lay out for you what you need to go do. I need to help you better see what the Lord says so you can go obey the Lord. Right? It's our aim has been for 17 years to preach to you, thus says the Lord. And we expect you to be priests. Who take God's word, the manual, and get on the same page of Jesus tomorrow in your domain and do what he says in making disciples. We, your pastors, your leadership at Three Rivers are more interested in you knowing and following Jesus than simply being a cultural Christian clone. We say our DNA is KDSC and that F, that S is society and it forms this DNA helix forms what we look like. And that S stands for domains of society. And that shift, there are four shifts in that. And this isn't a a, a vision sermon. That will come in January. But this is important because it's why we're preaching to you this series and why we do it like we do it. We don't just provide programs or ministries for you to consume. That, that, that's a bastion of cultural Christianity. We have some ministries that are necessary to function together, but our goal isn't to start more ministries. Our goal is to equip you and release you as disciples into your vocations to make disciples because that's the call of the church. 
If the church is the missionary, that means all of you are missionaries. Right? Which means you don't get on a plane and go there if you're not doing it here. Right? There's no magic plane ride. Oh, I'm going to be a missionary. Okay. How many disciples you made here? None. We ain't going to make any there. Right? It's just an extension. That's an extension of here. So we, we don't want you to be a cultural Christian clone. We want you to know God's word, know what it says, why it says it, apply it in your vocation and make disciples. Right? And so that's what we're aiming for. And with that introduction out of the way, let's dive in. I'm going to give you four characteristics of Scripture. Okay? There are more than this. I'm just going to give you four. There's so many more than this, but I'm just going to give you four. And the first one is this. Scripture is authoritative. Now here's the quote from Grudem. And by the way, on my book cart in the back, I've got two systematic theologies. And first people to come give me money can have them. They're 10 bucks a piece. They're like a $70 book, but I'm only charging 10 because our goal is not to make money, but to give you resources. And if you pay for it, you guys know my philosophy. If you pay for it, you'll use it. If you get it free, you'll throw it away, right? So give me 10 bucks. You can have one of them, right? And so um, I like Grudem because he's simple. Um, he's not a professional theologian. He's a Harvard economist. And then he got a degree in theology. So he's very much like easy to read. So I like starting with Grudem. So side note over. Come see me if you want that book. Two of them, 10 bucks a piece. But here's Grudem's definition of the authority of Scripture. Very helpful. And then we're going to look at some passages. All the words of Scripture are God's words. Okay? All the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any part of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Listen to this passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed. Spirited. Literally spirited out. Ministry of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is literally speaking this out. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God or the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Meaning, all the words of Scripture are God's words. So in other words, what we have in our Bible here is not man's words. They're not man's ideas. All the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any part of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. And Paul tells Timothy here that this Bible, and he's particularly in this passage referencing Genesis to Malachi. Meaning that Bible, Timothy, that Old Testament as we call it, which it doesn't call itself Old Testament. We put that label on it, which makes me very nervous because it preaches the gospel. It's Jesus' Bible. Jesus preached the gospel from there. It still preaches the gospel. That's called biblical theology. Is how Genesis to, to Malachi preaches the good news, and it does. right? And Paul told Timothy, it preaches the good news, and he said it is useful. It is profitable, because it comes from the Lord. And it does teaching, reproving, and correction, and training in righteousness, so that we're equipped and complete for any good work that we have to do. Meaning our first training comes from God's words that are found in the Bible. What about the New Testament? 1 Timothy 5.18. This is going to be a little nerdy. For, okay? And this one, I'm not going to apologize. Listen, 
God's people have to be taught. And we can't afford to hand you. cracks me up. And it actually makes me very sad. We send students off to school with nothing, and we wonder why they deconvert. And it could be because in times like this, we didn't give them anything except how to be a better whatever. As opposed to, let's lay a concrete, rock-solid Bible foundation. So that when the fool stands up and acts like a fool, you're not rocked because you knew that. Make sense? So that's what we're going to give you. I'm not going to apologize for it, okay? I'm sorry for apologizing. (laughs) So it's going to get nerdy for a minute. So just hang, okay? You need to know this. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes from Luke 10.7. Just let that settle for a second. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul is quoting from Luke 10.7, which means Luke was already in process or written at this time, which dates Luke way closer to the source of Jesus' life and death than some people give it credit for. It's a little New Testament scholarship for you. This wasn't written after A.D. 70. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, and these cats started writing it down. So in other words, their memories are fresh. And if you want some passages on inspiration, I have them in the notes. You can go see those later, but those are sermons in and of themselves. Okay, So here it is, 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes... Luke, who is quoting Jesus, and listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, period. Paul is calling Luke's writing about Jesus' life, scripture. The same words Paul used when talking about Genesis to Malachi, scripture. Meaning, how does Paul see Luke's writing? As scripture. That's huge. That's massive. And then he quotes, You should not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Quoting Jesus. And Paul's applying it to paying your pastor appropriately. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying that's what he's doing. He's quoting Jesus. And he's quoting Luke that was already written. And he calls Luke's writing scripture. John 17, 17. This is massive and it's my absolute favorite. Sanctify them in the truth. Semicolon. Your word is truth. Truth is a noun. It's not an adjective. And that's everything. Again, a little nerdy for you, but grammar matters. And by the way, God inspired the grammar too. Words, connections to one another help define meaning. And meaning is not inside you. You bring no meaning to the text. You bring zero meaning to the text. The text has the meaning. Our task is to mine it out. Right? Please never in any Radical Life Group meeting you're ever in say, it means this to me. You cannot place noun truth into the adjectival subjective nature of your world. It means what it means. And if you're wrong, you're just wrong. Sanctify them, clean them up in the truth. Your word is truth noun. It's not an adjective. An adjective gives some description of the noun. Noun is the very essence, meaning your word's very essence. It's very makeup. It's truth. Notice it tells us what's right and what's wrong. 
And Jesus said the word is truth. So all scriptures breathed out by God. Genesis to Revelation. It is God's word and it is truth. Meaning it defines what's right and what's wrong. And so therefore the scripture is authoritative. Students, you hear me? Scripture is authoritative. Me, I'm not authoritative. You are not authoritative. Right? The scriptures are authoritative. They define what's right and wrong. Therefore, it is never appropriate to skip reading, studying, knowing God's Word. It is the primacy. It is the baseline of your discipleship. Student workers, the baseline of their discipleship is God's Word. Three Rivers Church, the baseline of your discipleship is God's Word, not what you think about. What God says. It's true. So Scripture is authoritative. Number two, Scripture is inerrant. Okay? Now I want to say this. There's a note here in my notes, and they're highlighted, and they hopefully be highlighted for you on the blog. Inerrancy is a doctrine unique to Western civilization's version of Christianity in which Christians had to adapt its apologetic, that's its defense against outside attack, to a scientific attack on the validity of the Bible. These are my words. These are not Grudem, so there's no quote here. So I'm just describing. Inerrancy was articulated to provide an empirical defense against reason that had been divorced from Christ. Thus we, and this is a negative side effect, okay, Thus, we have been taught to read the Bible with scientific and empirical eyes and not with narrative eyes. And as a result, we have a tendency to see the Bible as merely a collection of true sayings disconnected from contextual meaning and cohesive narrative. And we fail to understand the whole narrative as a whole story that provides the framework for knowing what not, is not empirically true and what is ultimately true, and this is what Pastor Jim's going to preach on next week, is the Bible provides the narrative, the true story of all reality. And if we just approach it like Philippians 4.13 is how I'm going to get those 85s in each hand up five times tomorrow, it's Jesus. Mm, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We have misused the text. Okay? It's not a collection of just true statements. The whole thing, the whole story is the true story. Right? All of it. And it provides the framework for defining what's true in other stories and what's not true. Now, I've told you before, I'm going to say it again, and until you start reading them, you won't see it. Read Tolkien and Lewis, and they will help you read your Bible better. That was their aim in writing those stories, is to help you see the whole story. So that you judge everything by that. I see the world in Tolkien and Lewis lens. And I'm thankful for it because it's caused me to see the world with a Bible lens. It's helped me to read my Bible. So don't take it as a scientific book. The Bible is not a science textbook. It wasn't intended to be. Don't read it that way. You're going to miss the point. And do what last week taught us not to do. Recognize. However, that the entire story is true and it contains nothing in it that's false. So here's the definition of inerrancy. 
The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Meaning, if the Bible teaches it, it is true. Because John 17, 17 told us it's true. So there's nothing in the story that's untrue. There's nothing in the story that affirms anything untrue. In fact, if cultural ideology contradicts the Bible, which one's true? The Bible. And here's where it gets hard. Is when we worship the cultural ideology and shove God's word to the side as though, oh, that's just a cultural thing. That doesn't count anymore. We don't do that anymore. And fail to miss the point. And that's the result of reading it with scientific eyes, not narrative eyes. That everything in the scripture is inspired by God. Spirited out by God. And it's useful for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the people of God may be equipped for every good work lacking nothing. Meaning, reading your Bible may be hard work. But it doesn't affirm anything that's untrue. As a matter of fact, it affirms everything that's true. It affirms what is true and provides the framework for understanding that. I'll give you an example here. Um, how the Bible can use ordinary common language and still not fail in scientific accuracy. Example. One of the things I've heard from people on the outside throwing rocks at the Bible is, well, it talks about sunrises and sunsets. And they had an archaic worldview that thought the sun revolved around the earth. And so the Bible's wrong. One, the Bible can use common language and still be true. Because I've never met a scientist who gets up in the morning early with a nice cup of coffee and watches the beautiful earth movement. Right? And they definitely don't Instagram about it. What a beautiful earth movement this morning. Because that would be dumb. What do they say? Beautiful sunrise. And they don't believe the sun is moving around the earth, do they? Neither do you. Because we know better. So in other words, the Bible can use common, ordinary language and still be true. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? So in other words, don't misunderstand when you read it. Because when somebody who's not a Christian looks at the Bible with empirical eyes, they're going to say stuff like that. You need to be equipped with the ability to go, hey man, come on dude, that's called common language. If you really believe that, you would refer to that sunrise you talked about as a beautiful earth movement in the AM portion of the day. Right? And they're not going to do that, neither are you. Right? So the Bible can be true and affirm what's true while using common, ordinary language. Okay? That's inerrancy. And that goes a lot deeper down the rabbit hole, but we're not going to go there today because we don't have the time. If you get that book back there, you can go read it. Or order you one on the Amazon and get it in two days. Prime. Number three, Scripture's clear. Scripture's clear. I want to say this. If there's anything in the Bible unclear, it's not the Bible, it's us. Okay? The Scriptures are clear. Listen to how Grudem defines clear. The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-7. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. 
So are they just supposed to stay on my heart? No. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your grown disciples. No. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this is for adults only. And he doesn't say it's for scholars to debate in the schoolhouse or in the university classroom. Teach them to your children. And when you're in the house, talk about them. Why? Because they're able to be understood. One of the things that we often do and we cop out when we study the Bible is, well, I don't think God meant for us to understand that. And what I want to scream out, if it's in there, He meant for you to get it. That's why it's in there. Make sense? Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, by the way, if you want a primer on the Word of God, go to Psalm 119. It's an acrostic poem where sets of verses are set to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now in English, it doesn't come across because you just can't translate. I'm a translator. That's what I, my master's degree in theology and biblical languages. So I translate Greek and Hebrew. Very nerdy, right? So you don't see it in English because it just doesn't come over word for word. Just It's impossible. But it's like, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hei, and Vav, and Zion. Hei, Ten, Tei, Ten, Yod, and Kaf. Lama, Nu, Samak, Ayan. Pei, and Sade, Kof, and Reish, Shin, and Shin, and Tav. Yay! Good job, Jolly. All right. So, that's how you remember the Hebrew alphabet. And so, each letter has a set of verses that start with that letter of the alphabet. All the way through the Hebrew alphabet. It was designed for children to remember, thus the acrostic nature of it. So that these, these eight are Aleph, these eight are Beit, and the kids would remember because the first letter is Aleph. And so you want a, a good primer on the doctrine of the Word of God? Go read Psalm 119. It's my absolute favorite. It is absolutely loaded. Listen to Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. Isn't that beautiful? Unfolding your word causes, in other words, to translate that, you know, to exegete that, to interpret that. The unfolding, the opening, the study of God's Word causes me to see and understand more. It imparts wisdom to the simple. Meaning, the Scriptures teach simple people complex things. Meaning, the Scripture views all humanity as capable of understanding God's Word. The problem isn't the word, the problem is us. The problem isn't the word, the problem is we maybe view you as laity and us as the high priest. And there's only so much you can understand, so we don't want to confuse you. So I'm going to give you something easy so you don't walk away confused. Do you see how that's demeaning? And we've never taken that tact with you. Which is why we'll lay stuff on you because you're a priest to the Lord. You have Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe, if you're in Christ, dwells in you, and you have His Word. The Bible's clear 
And it's able to take the smallest among us and cultivate the good things of God and teach us to be wise. This is important, very important. Difficulty with life and challenges that come from not understanding something, okay? Listen carefully. Difficulty in life and challenges that come from us not understanding something is not due to the lack of clarity in the Scriptures. In fact, Jesus often spoke to this issue. Like in Matthew 12, 3, in Matthew twenty two thirty one, 31, these instances where Jesus may be eating on the, gleaning grain on the Sabbath. Or an instance where they had to practice leveret marriage. Brother died, passed his wife to his brother so that his brother could raise up children for him so that he wouldn't lose his inheritance. It's just something you have to go back to the Old Testament and read. And they would bring these impossible situations to Jesus and say, and all seven had her. Now, which spouse will she be in the resurrection? Like you're going to stump Jesus. And Jesus will say the most incredible thing. Have you not read? And then he quotes the Bible. And they're like, no. Okay. And even there are instances where they dare not ask Jesus anything else again because he just absolutely opened the scriptures and they're like, oh yeah, it is written. Hmm. The problem isn't the clarity of the Bible. Jesus will even say on instance, have you not read? Or he will say, you are mistaken because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And I give you these examples here in the notes. Jesus even said to them on multiple occasions, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Listen to what Peter says in regard to some people's questioning Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter admits that there are some hard things in Paul's writings. All right, Just flip over. Um, I, didn't put, I just put the scripture reference there. I didn't actually copy it into my notes. I'm gonna, I wasn't going to read it, but I feel, well, I want to read it, so I'm going to read it. Hmm. How about that? Um, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I'll just read verse 14 too. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count as patience and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, multiple things happen there. Number one, he equates Paul's writing as scripture. Number two, they are difficult to understand, not impossible to understand. Meaning... There are some things you're going to have to read in your Bible and think on. You have to pray on. You're going to have to unpack with other image bearers, eye to eye, face to face, as we taught last week, instructing one another in sound doctrine so that we grow up into Christ, right? And you're going to have to wrestle for years over some of that. You're going to have to wrestle with election. You're going to have to wrestle with the problem of evil. It's in the text. You're going to have to wrestle with Job 1 and Job 2 in which the inspired author says, 
when Job just said something that's mind-blowing, like he anticipates our objection. He says, in this, Job did not sin. Which is going to make you go back and look at ultimates. And, and, you're, and in your mind and in your soul, you have to talk this out. Where did that come from? Because that wasn't a sin, what Job said. Because the text says it's not sin. So there's some hard things there, but they're not impossible. The impossibility feels like it's impossible because it's conflicting with a broken worldview and a broken soul that refuses to see Jesus as king. Okay? So it's not that the Bible's unclear. The Bible's clear. It's just that most of us still wrestle with our discipleship in the world. I tell my boys frequently, I have been telling them more frequently lately, um, we're discipled by something. You're discipled by something. And in that instance, it's not Jesus. It's that. Everybody's a disciple of something. There's no such thing as somebody who's not a disciple of something. You're a disciple of something. The question is, what is discipling you? Is it the ads? Is it the love of something else? We are disciples of something. And just like water finds the easiest course to the sea, fallen humans find the easiest answer we can possibly find that makes us feel better. And sometimes feeling better isn't the conclusion, nor is it the best thing. Sometimes wrestling through the difficulty and letting the clear Scripture speak teaches us to find our home in Christ. And there we begin to get comfortable because He sits on the throne at the top of my heart's org chart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Uncomfortable, yet at rest. It's not like the Bible's unclear. It's clear. The problem is me. And then finally, the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. Here's what the necessity of Scripture means. Now, you, you can use this one hardcore in, in your life group meetings tonight. You know, all these you can use. But this one really is going to be very helpful. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. For maintaining spiritual life. For knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists. Or for knowing something about God's character or moral laws. God created the world in such a way. This is Romans 1, 18 through the rest of the, that chapter. That all of creation can look at the world and go, there's a moral ethical law. Matter of fact, Paul goes so far as to say... They suppressed that truth. And in their suppression, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what does sinful man do? They look at the world and go, God. Eh, but he's a bird. But he's a goat. He's calves. He's this. He's that. She's this. She's that. And they intentionally, actively suppress the truth that the God of the Bible is God and there is no other. So the Bible's not necessary for the world to know there is a God, nor is there ethical realities. But the Bible is necessary for us to know what the gospel is, maintain spiritual life, know God's will. So very quickly, the Bible's necessary for knowledge of the gospel. Romans 10, 13 to 17. If you've got a Bible, flip over there and look at that because this is huge. 
Listen, dear Christian, use your Bible. If you're ashamed to have it in public, memorize it. Or get you a tiny sword. Get a knife, right? You know, I call the Bible the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, this, is a, this, is a, this is a sword. And maybe you've got a little tiny one that's a knife. You hear the metaphor there. Whatever. Memorize it. Get a knife. Get a sword. Whatever you got to do. But it's necessary for knowing the gospel. Because if you're going to go out to your job tomorrow, and you've got people around you who need to be discipled into Jesus, you're going to have to do this. Okay? What does it say? For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious promise. If you call on Jesus, you will be saved. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't it be awesome to tell somebody tomorrow, if you just call on Jesus, he will save you. I, I double, triple dog dare you to do that tomorrow. I dare you. You won't do it. You're scared. Everybody, Sandlot, you know, once you triple dog dare, you're just obligated. So I triple dog dare you to do it tomorrow. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written. The Bible, quoting the Bible, which by the way, that's how you interpret the Bible. Start with interpreting the Bible with the Bible. Let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. The whole New Testament is an interpretation of everything written in the Old Testament. Framework number one. Okay, sorry. Went all scholarly on you. As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how are they going to have faith to believe on the Lord Jesus? Because you're going to say tomorrow, because I triple dog dare you, if you believe on the Lord, you'll be saved. Well, how are they going to be saved? How is faith going to become active? Through the word of Christ. Who carries that? You. And so drop the scriptural message of the gospel of the kingdom and say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. And he will do this miraculous work of giving faith, bringing life from death, light from darkness. But it's this Bible, it's this word of the kingdom, the word of Jesus Christ that has the power. Not you, not your apologetics, not your skill set, it's the word. And so the Bible's necessary for that message. And so memorize it, open it up and read it, but share with somebody tomorrow Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because they can't believe unless they hear it. And they're not going to hear it unless they're sent. And guess what? You just got sent. And they're going to hear unless you preach. And you've been sent to preach. So the Bible's necessary for that. So don't be ashamed of it. Second part of that is it's necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Matthew 4 4, who's quoting Deuteronomy 8 3. Here's what it says. And the tempter came and said to him. Now this is, by the way, this is Satan coming after Jesus immediately after his baptism and initiation of his ministry. So by the way, you follow Jesus, don't think it gets easier, it gets harder. Jesus himself got assaulted by the enemy as soon as his ministry went public. So expect tomorrow, you go public with the word, expect him to come hard in the paint. He's coming Jesus gave us the blueprint on fighting back. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones 
to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word is necessary for maintaining spiritual health. It's more primary than the food you'll eat today and tomorrow. That's how you maintain your spiritual life is the word of God. And then it's necessary for knowing God's will. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Meaning the Bible reveals for us God's good purpose. You want to know what God's purpose is? It's in the manual. You've heard that a lot here, haven't you? I'm going to disciple you into saying it's in the manual because it's in the manual. This is the manual and it's in there. You want to know the will of God? It's in there. You want to know how to maintain spiritual life? It's in the manual. If you need the gospel to be powerful at work tomorrow, it's in the manual. Finally, that was finally, but this is the conclusion. And I'm done, I promise, because the clock's off. This is preparing you to worship, right? Scripture, and it's the Bible that shows us the primacy of worshiping Jesus. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again this week. I'm continually struck. I was talking with my friend Zach Mabry this week, who's these students know who Zach is. He leads worship at Snowbird. And Zach and I are friends, and we read the same plan. And so we're talking this week. And, and uh, he was asking me, what are the things that are striking you this year in your Bible study? What are, as you're reading through the Scriptures, what are the things that are standing out to, to you? And there are two things that are standing out, and I'll just share with you one. And I shared this last week. I can't unsee... This year, my Bible reading, the primacy of worship. David, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, stationed an entire division of Levitical priests to to go in shifts before the Lord and sing and play instruments. There was no audience but the Lord. I can't, I've known that. I've read that through more times than I can count. And I get it, but something this year makes me get it. Like, do you understand there was no audience but the Lord? <laughs> it was just the Lord. And, it, and, and there was no sacrifice of excellence because it was for the Lord. So it was good. Which is why he chose skilled Levites who were skilled, even said skilled in singing and skilled in playing. And they played before the Lord. And they celebrated large events such as Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall where they had great choirs who went north and some went south all along the top of this new wall. And they began to sing, the steadfast love endures forever. And they, and they sung and they played back and forth such that the ground shook. Joy was center in all of it. Happiness. Celebration. And I can't, get, I can't get past that. And so we're talking about the Bible, God's Word. It's in the manual that we be a worshiping people, which is why in a worship service we don't just sing to sing. It's singing and music is not to attract you. Singing and worship is a vehicle for you and I to give the Lord what He's worthy to have. And that's my allegiance and your allegiance. And we get to express that in song, in prayer, in listening, in learning, in the Lord's Supper. This interactive movement called worship, where the Lord is the audience and we're the actors. 
participating in this divine stream of God reaching down to love us and us reflecting back praise to Him. So what we're about to do is prescribed in the Bible. And in a very real way right now, every single one of you are Levitical priests who've been prescribed a task. And some will be on stage with instruments, but all of us have a voice. And guess what? My worship to the Lord is not an issue of it being my jam or not. There's no such thing as I'm just not, that's just not what I do. He demands that you do it. And if it's in the manual and it's necessary for maintenance of spiritual life, then maybe I need to sing, whether it's my jam or not. Whether I sing good or not, because clearly I don't. Some of you sit around me, no, I don't. But I will scream sing, because it's in the manual. Not scream singing, but singing. But scream singing is all I know to do. So would you join me in obeying God's word? And let's give back to the audience this morning what he deserves, and that's our worship. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you help us do that good right now. We ask that you help us, and, and maybe it's supernatural, you help some of us sing good, but just help us to sing, to have a desire to want to give to you the depths of our soul reflected back to you in music and in song. It's in the manual that we do this. Jesus, you even modeled it on your last meal with the disciples that after taking the Passover meal together, you led them in singing a hymn. And then you went out to be arrested, to die for their sin and their rebellion. <laughs> you sung before you went to be arrested. I'll be dadgum if we shouldn't do the same thing. So Lord, would you help us to, to not only just obey what your word says, but to live your example? I'm sure in your soul you weren't feeling it at that moment, but you gave back to the Father like the Son should have by the help of the Spirit. So would you help us now, creatures of yours, to give back to you what you deserve, maybe from the heights of joy, maybe some of us from the depths of sorrow, and maybe a lot of us in the middle somewhere there. But help us to give back to you what you deserve because you call us to. Lord, help us to hide your word deep in our heart that we might not sin against you. And may your word be a lamp for our feet, light for our path.